0: This is The Other Side with Damien Khoury.
1: And g'day, welcome to episode 13 of The Other Side Australia for Friday, November 20, 2020, all the 20s. And this is our very first episode on the Australian media platform, The Good Source. We'll be telling you more about that later. We're very happy to join alongside other alternative media podcasts, vloggers and writers, and we have got a huge show for you this week. Might be one to listen to in two goes even. This is why it's great to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or YouTube or through the good source. They'll always notify you and let you know every Friday morning when we upload. And also you can pick up where you left off. If you decide to stop in the middle this week, China takes off the gloves and hits hard at Australia. How should we manage the dragon nation into the future? Donald Trump facing certain defeat eventually as the legal options start to run dry. We will discuss why America is in for an even rougher four years ahead. Don't party too hard, Democrats. COVID 19, we will update you as best we can on all the latest what's happening in Europe, South Australia, and what are the experts saying now? We'll hear from Dr. Anthony Fauci from the US and a leading UK epidemiologist. And Carolyn DeRusso will join us from Perth to discuss Australian politicians acting in fear and maybe even illegally sometimes. And what happens when two consenting single adults get into a relationship at work? How Australia's HR industry has truly lost the plot. The scandal that isn't really a scandal at all over at Nine Media, Ellie Melli, Alexandra Marshall will join me to discuss. Lock it on, it's a big one. Let's go. Well, this week the federal government got a lesson in what happens when you try to play nice with a foreign government that only respects strength and power treasurer josh freidenberg extended an olive branch to china's communist party government this week to try to ease the escalating trade tensions between our two countries he said that the morrison government was ready for some respectful and beneficial dialogue with beijing now australia's business leaders some of them not all of them are getting a little nervous about our declining relationship with china Speaking on Wednesday at the Australian newspaper's two-day strategic forum, Mr Frydenberg said this, Both of our countries have benefited hugely from our growing trade relationship. Without this, we both lose. The economic weight of the world has now changed. And not surprisingly, our current institutions, rules and norms are coming under increasing pressure. We see this most clearly through the lens of increased strategic competition between the US and China. This has seen the U.S. shift from viewing China as a strategic partner to a strategic competitor. But he says, as Australia navigates this changing environment, we will always protect our national interests first and foremost. This is non-negotiable. And we'll continue to stand up for our values and our long-term security, prosperity and sovereignty. That's Josh Frydenberg this week. Former Prime Minister John Howard this week also urged Scott Morrison to seek out a face-to-face meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. A bad relationship with China does cost our economy. 40% of our exports go to China, and one in 13 jobs are tied to China. But we must never sell out our principles of freedom, human rights, and civil liberties. This is why it's absolutely critical That we all work hard to build new markets, stronger relationships and ties with our traditional cultural allies in the West. And closer to home with democracies like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea and most of the ASEAN nations, the Southeast Asian nations, especially those that most closely share our cultural values like Singapore and the Philippines, for example. In his address, the Treasurer said that the expansion and pursuit of trade and strategic partnerships in the Asia-Pacific region, including with India and Indonesia, would act as an insurance policy against our over-reliance on China. And he's right. Australian business does need to focus on that, and business needs to focus on true sustainability, which means doing business with nations that we can keep on doing business with without compromising our values. It was great to see Scott Morrison become the first world leader to meet face to face with the new Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga this week. And even better news that we've signed an historic defence agreement with Japan. So, how did China respond to the olive branch extended by Josh Frydenberg? Not well. The Chinese embassy in Canberra told Channel 9 News on Wednesday that China is angry. If you make China the enemy, China will be the enemy. So there you have it. The Chinese Communist Party can either be your enemy or your friendly neighbourhood bully. It's up to you. The Australian reports that the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Lijian told a daily briefing on Tuesday that the relationship is one with serious difficulties. China's grievances were outlined in a one-page document reported on in Beijing-controlled media outlets. Here they are. Number one, Australia had accused the Chinese government of infiltration with no evidence. Yeah, well, I I think there's a a fair bit of evidence, Shao. Number two, we banned their big telco Huawei from our 5G network. Well, that was a wise move for security and defence reasons. Number three, Australia blocked foreign investment bids by Chinese companies. Uh Uh-huh. And number four, we had the audacity to call for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. (gasps) Shame on us. The document also notes, quote, outrageous condemnation of the governing party of China by MPs. How dare we criticise a totalitarian nation. And racist attacks against Chinese or Asian people. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little annoyed when a communist government that rounds up its own citizens of different ethnic origin and throws them into gulags, dares to call the country that I love racist. Ask any Australian ethnically Chinese person or any Taiwanese Hong Kong or Southeast Asian Chinese person living here in Australia if the racism here is any worse back home in their own countries or anywhere else. And most will say it isn't. And most of the Chinese from communist mainland China that are here studying or enjoying a freer life, if they felt safe enough to speak out, would also agree. Because it isn't. The government's policy on China is the right one. We can never be China's best mate. They're either our enemy, and they trade with us as little as they possibly can, or they're a bully who we must let push us around. I say... We start looking for better trading partners fast.
0: This is The Other Side with Damian Curry, a new podcast for the quiet Australians. Tell your friends to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms.
1: Well, let's start the show this week with uh, something we haven't talked about for a while in depth, uh, coronavirus. A lot of uh, stuff going on that's incredibly confusing for you. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm drowning in it. Uh, But here's what we know so far. The coronavirus outbreak in Europe now seems to be slowing down a little bit. Uh, The World Health Organization data this week showed the number of new cases in the continent has declined from around 1.85 million on November the 9th to 415,000 on November the 16th. So that's that's a big decline. In the German capital of Berlin on Wednesday, there were violent clashes between people who were protesting against the coronavirus restrictions that have been put in place and the police. Germany's been one of the, the more badly hit countries. But As the new cases fall, the tally of deaths is still rising quite substantially. Uh, More than 29,000 new deaths, according to the World Health Organization. But that, we have to remember, is still considerably lower than the fatality levels that were seen in Europe's first wave. The death toll from COVID in the United States uh, has hit the quarter of a million mark. Um, The country recorded the largest number of fatalities in four months this week. Closer to home, South Korea had its uh, largest daily increase in infections in nearly three months. They're tightening social distancing rules up there in the capital, Seoul. 313 new cases were reported Wednesday, so it's nothing like the US or Europe. Uh, But that brings their overall total since the outbreak began to more than 29,000 in Korea. Uh, They've had just under 500 deaths all up, one of the worst hit countries in our region Conflicting news and views from experts and epidemiologists remain. All we can do is sift through the thinking and present a range of views for your own consideration. So we're going to start today with the orthodox view. The director of America's peak infectious diseases body, uh, Mr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, was interviewed by Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC, this week. And uh, he had this to say. Let's listen to Dr. Fauci first of all.
2: Right now... The entire planet is in trouble. If you look at almost every country, with very few exceptions, the European Union, if you look at the number of new infections, it's out of sight. The United States is out of sight. Canada, which was supposedly doing so well, is also getting into trouble. There's a lot of community spread, mainly spread among people who don't know they're infected, at the household level, small gatherings.
1: Dr Fauci is suggesting that governments react with lockdowns, but do them in really targeted, specific ways.
2: Lock down, in a surgical way, certain things. Like they say, okay, all bars closed. No congregate settings, more than 10 people. Then you can do that at a local level without locking down the entire community. When you do that, the economic consequences are severe. So you should be able to do that without necessarily locking down the entire country.
1: That was Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of America's Peak Infectious Diseases Institute, speaking with the Canadian state broadcaster, the CBC, a couple of days ago. Now, I get a lot of criticism um, from people for not presenting the orthodox view on this show. So I wanted to present that uh, this time, just to be clear So that's Dr. Fauci, that's the orthodox view, lockdown with limitation, lockdown with great specificity, not whole countries, not whole states, Um, and lockdowns that have and enable as much freedom as possible. That should be the focus. The focus should be on keeping people free and not restricting their liberty, otherwise you're going to get all sorts of other uh, health problems and psychological problems and business and economic problems as well. Okay, now, this show is called The Other Side for a reason. We're here to present the news that you're not getting from the mainstream media in Australia because the mainstream media in Australia are like shit. They just follow each other around uh, because they're not well-resourced. They don't have the time. The ABC sets the agenda because it's the best resource and everyone else just follows to a large extent. So this show is about presenting other points of view. So we will be biased towards uh, the less... Uh, orthodox views the more contrarian views so I'm going to now present what I would normally present on the show which is Professor Tim Spector Uh, he's a UK epidemiologist one of the creators of an app for smartphones called Zoe that gets a million people a day in the UK logging on putting in information about how they're feeling uh, and uh, you know responding to questions about symptoms and things and by doing this they've been able to track infection data around the country better than many government authorities can. And now they're working with the government. Now, they apparently noticed the trend down in infection rates in the UK before the new tougher lockdown measures were introduced over there. So in other words, the UK could have avoided going into the tougher lockdown because this data app was able to predict the what we're seeing now, which is a decline in the number of infections. Professor Tim Spector spoke to Unheard's Lockdown TV this week. Uh, I'll put the full interview, the link in the program notes for you so you can watch the whole interview if you like. Here's a little bit about what uh, Professor Spector had to say.
3: If our data had been used to decide whether to go into a lockdown or not, I think uh, people would have reached a very different conclusion.
4: Does that make you think that it was the wrong conclusion and that we should have seen how things went with the Tiered approach before going into a national lockdown.
3: Yeah, my my personal opinion is that the tiered approach was working. That even in the worst places, uh, it it was already on the way down before we we came out of the tiered approach. And if
2: uh, you know
3: the government had held its nerve, we'd be very much the same situation, but without a national lockdown. So there's a there's both a, a natural phase of the virus. Uh, It comes in waves anyway, uh, and affects people, then suddenly runs out of susceptible people to to infect. And there's also the, the effects of restrictions. And both of these things were in play.
1: That's epidemiologist Professor Tim Spector speaking to Unheard TV. The discussion then moves to why politicians are so quick to take the overly cautious approach even if it comes at great personal liberty, health and economic costs for the community. And it's mainly because there's no political gain in not taking it. So long as we cower in fear and cheer on over-restrictive measures, our politicians are never going to take the right, balanced, nuanced approach that Spectre and even Fauci are now talking about. It's too hard. Besides, if you just take the easy road, you not only avoid trouble, you get praised. Even if you cause the first outbreak as we've seen with the jump in popularity for Dan Andrews in Victoria, the arsonist being lauded for putting out the fire he started, and the re-election of Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland for her overly strict border controls. If you take a more balanced approach, you'll be condemned as uncaring and not concerned about people's health, and the all-too-simplistic argument, you're putting money before people, (laughs) if only it was that simple, Even in the UK, which has nowhere near the level of fear and hysteria we do here in Australia, Professor Spector says the media are not contextualising the numbers that they're pumping out every day.
3: Both the government and the media, it must be said, are not uh, putting things in context. They're not um, equating the loss in GDP to loss of life and uh, longevity. Uh, They're not Adding up the numbers of cancer uh, and heart attack victims that are caused, the number of suicides and depressions, and so um, the argument is um, it's there in the background, but it's not really upfront. And you know, and everyone is has been in a way programmed by the uh, most of the traditional press to be looking at number of confirmed cases in you know, a number of deaths, and there's no context there at all. They just see a death count and, you know, don't realize that, you know, in most Novembers and Decembers, 50,000 people die uh, each month. Um, and so these numbers are actually trivial compared to the expected rates. We don't see any balance in that. So um, as an epidemiologist, and there are a number of people who think like myself, we should be taking a much broader view of this. and that. There should have been um, a a balanced view where the prime minister could have said, well, you know, this is what's happening. But if I do this, uh, these other people will die. And there's a probability that this model is wrong. uh, Where There's there's no doubt that with lockdown, these people will die. It could have been a different uh, scenario. But uh, it comes back to your major point that uh, politicians... And actually, scientists uh, only seem to get punished um, when they uh, underestimate risk, uh, and you know their jobs are threatened. And, we, and that's generally true across all, all society. We, we are very risk-averse without ever thinking of the consequences of these, these, uh, these restrictions on, on all of our lives.
1: Those of you who've been listening to The Other Side Australia since we started about three months ago will know that we've been saying that same thing consistently throughout uh, this whole situation, that there needs to be more nuance, more sophisticated, more agile, more flexible government response and government approaches, and that we shouldn't be rewarding politicians for taking the easy way out and just doing blanket shutdowns or blanket border closures. I strongly recommend that you check out the full interview. The link is in our program notes. That's with Unheard's Lockdown TV, uh, which is a great, great channel to be following in any case. Joining me in a moment, Carolyn DeRusso, corporate lawyer and media commentator. She'll be talking to us from Perth about the Western Australia uh, border closure and what's happening there. We'll also uh, chat about what's going on in South Australia and the lack of nuance and <laughs> that's going on there, uh, to say the least. Our regular guests, Alexandra Marshall and Ray Rudowski, will be joining me later in the show. Alex and I will be chatting about how Hugh Marks, the CEO of Nine News, was forced to resign from his position for having a normal, adult, consensual, open relationship with uh, a colleague, another senior colleague. Um, nothing me too about it. But, nevertheless, both of them had to leave the company. We'll talk about that. And Ray Rudowski will be joining me to chat all about the United States election. We'll give you a full update on the US election situation. All of that coming up later on the show. Don't go away. Got some great news. The Other Side Australia is very happy to now be one of the shows available on The Good Source Network. The Good Source, spelt S-A-U-C-E dot news, is an Australian platform for right-thinking podcasts and vlogs. When I moved back to Australia early this year after spending almost 20 years in Asia, I was shocked at how journalism had changed since the late 90s when I was on Channel 10. Like America, Australia's broadcast media was becoming very editorialised and political. But unlike America, it seemed only one ideological viewpoint dominated, the left, with only a couple of notable exceptions. The Good Source is a right-thinking website bringing some truth and balance to the Aussie media echo chamber. Good Source is the first conservative source of videos and podcasts like mine by so many independent voices from around the country, from classical liberals like me to libertarians and conservatives. We agree and we disagree, but we at least bring the other side of the conversation to the table. Its articles transparently distinguish between opinions and briefings, honest news without so-called progressive agendas. Would you like to help us grow and produce more right thinking new media to broaden the conversation in Australia? Leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and mention the Other Side Australia as your favourite to help us rise in the rankings and be heard by more people. Also, subscribe to email updates and become a Good Source supporter at the team's website. That's GoodSource, S A U C E dot news. It's possible that Victorians may soon be allowed to take off their masks by their government. The Victorian police will slap you with a $200 fine from the Labor government if you dare to take your mask off when you're outside your home. But now Premier Daniel Andrews has hinted that you may be allowed to take it off when you're not near other people. However, the Premier said the wearing of masks indoors and in crowded places would continue despite Victoria reaching 20 straight days with no new coronavirus cases. Meantime, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has backed South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall's unconventional six-day Adelaide lockdown. The Australian newspaper reports that almost every South Australian business is now closed, including shopping malls, retail, construction, restaurants and takeaway, pubs, cafes, elective surgery, and every school and the state's three universities. Supermarkets and, importantly, bottle shops will remain open. The PM told Channel 7 that this is a precautionary circuit-breaking action to avoid something a lot more long-term. Liberal Premier Marshall defended the extreme lockdown himself by saying it's the state's best hope at being able to celebrate Christmas. What garbage. Western Australia's Labor Premier Mark McGowan has backed South Australia's move. WA hasn't had any community transmission for more than seven months. McGowan said the best model to fight the virus was to keep it out of WA and everything else. And he said although Victoria had improved, the situation in South Australia made him ultra-cautious about any future changes to border arrangements. Joining me now from Perth, I'm very happy to have political commentator, writer, businesswoman and corporate lawyer Carolyn DeRusso. Carolyn, welcome to The Other Side Australia. Anytime, mate. McGowan has uh, closed the borders very, very hard to the rest of the nation. Um, How's that worked out for you over in WA?
0: For the most part, and in a practical sense, it, it has worked out pretty well from us um, from the health perspective. Look, we we haven't had um, any community transmission in months um, and for the most part we, we go about our day-to-day business here. Um, we've had a few cases in hotel quarantine, but, I mean, that there's been happening with everyone, so it's pretty normal. Um, so our borders, they obviously closed in March and while some of the other states started to open up a little bit before, for us, um, it wasn't until uh, November that we we said that we would open without quarantine requirements um, to other states that didn't have community transmission. Right, um, and then obviously, you know, twenty four hours into our new regime, um, South Australia has an outbreak, and that border slams shut.
1: Yeah, okay, and so the situation now is the South Australia border is closed, but people can still come in if they're coming from not. Through South Australia, basically.
0: Yes. So if you're coming from the Northern Territory or um, Queensland or Tasmania, you can you can come in and out. Well, this is my understanding, in and out without the requirement of quarantine. But if you're coming from Victoria um, or New South Wales, you, you, there is still the the home quarantine requirement when you get back.
1: Right. Okay. And what's the vibe or mood over there politically? I mean, do people support? Premier McGowan, uh like, like Queenslanders supported Anastasia Palachet on the on this very strong border closure?
0: Yeah, and, and McGowan has had really strong support on this from right at the beginning. Um I think I started to notice a little bit of a change in in people's mood probably around late August, September, I think people started to think, okay, well, look, the country's pretty much got this under control. Is this really strict requirement, this hard border, really necessary? Um, and and I suppose as we started to see the other states open up and families being reunited and we're getting closer to Christmas, I think that has started to... Um, to, to tweak with a few people who are like, actually, you know what, I haven't seen, you know, ex-family member in months and, and there are guys working FIFO up north here who, who need to stay here to work, but some of them haven't seen their kids since February. Right. So that's really starting to to rub with some people. Okay. Overall, it's been popular.
1: So that, that might mean, well, you've got an election coming up in March, on March 13, that's only four months away. Uh, it doesn't look likely given Palaszczuk's success in Queensland that uh, McGowan's going to change his mind anytime soon and take a more balanced nuanced approach to things just uh, you know keeping that border closed if there's any risk at all would seem to be the way he'll continue to go do you think?
0: Yeah I think he will look it's it's been very popular for him you know we don't really know what the economic situation is in WA. I mean, the McGowan government keeps telling us how wonderful it is and everyone keeps talking about how life is basically back to normal. But, you know, we are still largely propped up on, on federal government largesse. So, you know, that there doesn't run out till really after the election. Um, so I don't think people have really felt the pinch yet. You know, they right. haven't really felt the opportunity cost of those borders being closed.
1: Well, what's kind of funny about this whole situation is that- that uh, the policies of uh, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, and I'm not criticizing them, they need to probably put a little bit of a cushion there for the economy uh, with JobKeeper and Job Seeker. But those policies are probably what is going to be the reason that two Labor premiers who uh, you know, might not otherwise have won their their states have won their states again. Certainly, in the Queensland case, maybe your uh, case is a little different because I know McGowan has a very big majority in Parliament there of uh, I think forty one out of fifty nine seats.
0: You can understand why the federal government doesn't just want to abandon West Aussies and abandon Queenslanders because uh, yes. we just happen to be unfortunate enough to have Labor governments. Um, but but ultimately. Um, it is making those governments look better than what they are. And it has allowed them to focus on the health narrative, because someone else is taking care of the economic narrative.
1: You're a corporate lawyer more than a constitutional lawyer. But I mean, just I want to get a sense of the business vibe. I mean, are people uh, ready to sort of or thinking about in the corporate world, perhaps uh, suing? I mean, we had the Clive Palmer case. Can you bring us up to date on what happened there? I know that that didn't go his way, but but uh, what what was the la- What's the latest on that? And what what is the feeling?
0: Yeah, so Clive um, Clive Palmer's case got heard at the beginning of November. Um, I think it was last week or the week before um, the decision came down that that ultimately that challenge was unsuccessful, and that uh, I, my understanding is that a constitutional issue wasn't raised because the um, the directive of the state was. Um, Reasonable in the circumstances. Now the reasons haven't come down yet. We should have the decisions before the second of December because my understanding is Justice Nettle sat on that bench, and he has to retire by the second of December. So we should have the reasons by then. Um, business in general, they're adapting the best that they can. There are some sectors like like travel and retail that are really struggling. The miners and mining related services are are pretty okay, um, but as far as you know. Um, uh, legal options for businesses there aren't really there isn't really much in the way of legal options unless the government is found to be act, acting outside of their powers one thing that i do like to to bring up occasionally is part 13 of the public health act in wa um, which does say that if you suffer loss and damage as a result of a health directive that you can make an application for compensation so long as that loss occurred within I think it's the previous 90 days
1: right so that okay. Mm.
0: That might be an avenue for some businesses who who have suffered loss,
1: but obviously the government is not promoting that
0: no. No, <laughs> no, governments never promote anything which might hold them accountable. Um, and and, and personally I don't know any anyone, anyone who's actually uh used it yet, um, but it is there as an option. And look, I'd like to see people punt into the government and and have a crack because I think the government does need to understand that there is a cost, there is a there is a, a private sector cost. To these decisions that they make, which ultimately a water off a duck's back, because it doesn't really affect them.
1: Um, so people should do that. I mean, feel like they can actually uh, at least make an application to kind of send yep. a message if your small business yep. is going to the wall,
0: or ring your local MP.
1: Yep.
0: You know, um, ring the premier's office. You know, write to the letters to the editor. You know I, just whatever call into talk back i I love talk back radio because for me, talkback is when there's a change in mood, I always find you see it on talkback first because that there is the opportunity for the the everyday punter to have a statewide platform
1: yeah, but and you're not, making me you're making me feel young again, Carolyn. I mean, it's like <laughs> that was the original social media in my day, you know. Right. (laughs) We were the social media on Talkback Radio. Um, Carolyn, one other thing I know is pretty dear to your heart that I wanted to talk about was the question of, you know, one of the reasons why some of these premiers might be taking such extreme actions uh, is that the health departments are, let's say, not in as good a shape as somewhere like New South Wales where they've got very, very good contact tracing uh, and they're trying to cover up their own uh, shortcomings um, yeah. Also, I know that you guys have got a lot of problems just generally with your with your healthcare provision and hospital beds and emergency rooms.
0: Coronavirus first became an issue in March. The national cabinet has been around since March, so I really, as far as I'm concerned, there's no excuse for not all the states to be up to speed. It's the 19th of November. Yeah. How are we having this conversation? Why isn't South Australia ready? And to speak personally about WA. You know, we in in October we had record ambulance ramping at um, at our ER departments. And 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 for anyone who doesn't know, amb- ambulance ramping is you know the amount of time that um, patients going to ER have to remain in an, in the ambulance outside, out the front, essentially on the ramp because there's no space in ER. Yep. So in October for us, it was over 3,200 hours, which is worse than the 2019 flu season. The government's job is to fix this, but it's easier to shut the border. So they took that option.
1: Well, we have less influenza because of coronavirus, you know. So (laughs) it's interesting uh, that they're having that problem still. Carolyn DeRusso, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Great to have you on the other side of Australia. Please come back on the show sometime soon.
0: Anytime, anytime. My absolute pleasure.
1: Coming up very soon, Ray Rudowski will join us with the latest from the United States, all the election update that you need. And Alexandra Marshall will join me to discuss the situation with Kevin Rudd and the mysterious petition for the uh, media inquiry, which has had a few funny people signing up on it. Uh, It doesn't look quite as legitimate as we first thought. i got a very well-written email from a listener named Rachel that I wanted to share with you. Uh, Rachel writes, I wanted to drop you a quick note having recently subscribed to the podcast. It's so refreshing to hear so many of the views I hold articulated so well. Since moving to Australia a few years ago, I've been shocked by the chronic lack of objective criticism in the mainstream media. While I noticed it more acutely during the bushfire crisis last summer, COVID has really shone a light on how little accountability is held to the government by the press here. As a Brit who's lived in Asia for a number of years, I am in equal parts appalled at the absence of a sustainable approach from both the state and federal governments and the unfathomable apathy of the Australian people to hold their elected officials accountable. The most personal example of this for me as an expat is the nonsensical draconian restrictions on outbound travel for citizens and permanent residents coupled with the incoming flight caps how can a supposed liberal democracy get away with effectively putting its entire population under country arrest for an indefinite amount of time putting aside the worrying precedent that this sets from a democratic and basic human rights standpoint these restrictions are unspeakably cruel depriving hundreds of thousands of dual residents the ability to travel to family in need, despite a willingness to adhere to restrictions on return. In regards to the outbound travel ban, we are alone in the Western world. No one should have to beg their democratically elected government for permission to leave the country while the political business and sporting elite sly in and out as they choose. Given that this country's economy is in large part built on economic migration, the continued treatment of dual citizens and residents is a slap in the face. And I do worry that there will be a mass exodus if the situation's not quickly resolved. It's entirely possible to keep the borders open while containing the spread of the disease through technology testing and well-managed quarantine. There are countless examples of countries doing just that. But no one in Australia is looking to these countries no one is talking about them and there's no objective critical analysis of the government's approach by the media by the opposition parties and the general public and with not even a semblance of a plan that doesn't involve a golden goose vaccine i fear the government has climbed a tree and kicked away the ladder in its approach to the international borders i could not have written that better myself rachel i know exactly where you're coming from and uh i think yep the way this is being handled is is extraordinary i think australia is one of the only countries where you freely can't leave in the world apart from cuba and north korea so go us for liberty and sticking up for liberty <laughs> Joining me now once again is Ray Rudowski, our expert on all things North America. Ray, thank you for joining me.
5: Great. And it's been a very interesting week uh, since uh, we last spoke,
1: hasn't it? Absolutely. Where do you think we're at now? What are the current challenges uh, faced by the Trump campaign, if you can call it that anymore? Uh, What are their chances of success from here? Almost zero, I would suggest.
5: Well, it's, it's, I think it's tough to say. Uh, I think that uh, defining success in this situation may in fact be raising more awareness about the potential for irregularities, voter fraud, and a lot of other issues that he brought up prior to this in terms of mail-in ballots being an unreliable way to capture uh, a transparent vote in this current climate of suspicion.
1: Just a reminder to people that the election involved about 155 to 160 million votes, and of those, 62 million were mailed in, and another 39 million were in-person votes uh, that were uh, made uh, before the election day. So actual voting on election day uh, was only about 50 to 60 million of the of the overall 160 million votes, which is pretty extraordinary, right? This is not a usual. Everyone keeps saying, oh, in any other election, you know, that you'd concede straight away. This is outrageous that he hasn't conceded. But there is a fair case to say, look, you know, this is unprecedented and we need to be careful.
5: Unprecedented um, use of mail-in ballots uh, on a system that wasn't quite set up for it You've got these voting machines, which I think are worth uh, greater scrutiny that somehow either didn't capture votes, flipped votes, or there were warnings about them prior to the election being somehow unreliable or suspect. And in the case of at least one state, Texas, they refused to use that voting system because there were so many questions about it prior to the election. Then you've got a situation where there's now a, a vote recount in Georgia that is coming under scrutiny by the Trump uh, team because, again, they believe or feel that there aren't enough uh, uh, scrutineers uh, able to review the ballots that are being recounted. And Mm. so there's a lot of questions in this that point to a very bad feeling about the outcome no matter which way it turns.
1: We did a special update on uh, on the numbers on Monday. People can go back and have a listen to that as well. But basically, we're in a situation where uh, the two states with the narrowest margins uh I believe, Arizona and Georgia. Right.
5: Well, then there's also Michigan and Wisconsin, and of course Pennsylvania. So I think there's five states that really are um, what we would call perhaps under that require greater scrutiny. Right, um, and Donald and Trump would need situation-
1: just to be just to be clear, Donald Trump would need to win three of those to, for victory. Uh, So what I want to look at is just each state one by one. So Georgia, the latest news from Georgia, uh, the hand recount going on there is nearly complete. And officials are saying that they have confidence in the initial results. There are roughly five million votes cast in Georgia. They've all been reviewed. Um, And so, so far, officials have found discrepancies in only four counties, Uh, that made a difference in the vote margin, just decreasing Biden's lead from about 14,000 down to about 12,700. So it doesn't look like there's going to be any change uh, there. And indeed, just a few hours before we recorded this segment uh, in an interview on CNN, the Georgia Secretary of State, who's a Republican, said he believed that Biden would remain the winner after the uh, rest of the audit was complete. And second state to look at, Arizona... Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich, who is a Republican, uh, has said that there is no evidence of widespread fraud in Arizona to the extent that might change the result. The third state would be Wisconsin. The Trump campaign is going to formally petition election authorities to conduct a recount in two Democratic-leaning counties in that state. Um, that will be, according to experts, unlikely to reverse. Trump's loss, but it could allow him to delay formally accepting the loss in the state. It's going to cost $3 million for the campaign to do that, and they have sent the money over to the uh, Wisconsin Elections Commission to cover that cost. The fourth state we're looking at is Pennsylvania. It's a really important one because it's 20 electoral college votes, which is quite a lot. Now, Joe Biden finished up 60,000 votes ahead in Pennsylvania, which is quite a substantial lead. Uh, But the Trump campaign's tactic here. Uh, is to go in and ask a federal judge to throw out the election results completely. They want the, the, um, the state legislature, which is Republican-controlled, to just override the election and appoint presidential electors, um, which they could theoretically do, but the Republican leaders in the state legisl- legislature have insisted for weeks that they are absolutely not going to be doing that or they won't have any role in the process. Now, the campaign is alleging that its constitutional rights were violated because some of the Democrat-leaning counties allowed voters to fix mistakes on their mail ballots, but some of the Republican-leaning counties didn't. That's one of the lines of attack in Pennsylvania. Secondly, they have alleged that observers were illegally prevented from watching the vote count. Um, Election officials have completely denied that, according to the Washington Post, Uh, The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that Philadelphia authorities did give reasonable access to the observers. So, Ray, that is the state of play. Not looking great for President Trump. It's
5: In in football, uh, it would be a Hail Mary pass. Mm. But there is that possibility, and in this particular year, anything can happen. Now, what will likely happen, and whether there's enough political and judicial will to make that happen, Is still still remains to be seen.
1: Trump seems to be pushing the line about this software, about the Dominion software. Uh, What's that all about?
5: It's interesting because um, what's happened in a number of these states is that they've discovered that the voting machines, the counting machines, um, have uh, miscounted or in some cases awarded votes to Biden that were in fact um, entitled to Trump. They have um, uh, they haven't been able to read signatures. There's all sorts of questions about whether or not they're actually effective in doing the job that they're supposed to be doing and whether they're prone to the prospect of hacking, which um, is all, something that was warned uh, prior to the election. And in fact, some Democrat, some leading Democrats had concerns about this um, particular company and its and its track record. In the case of Texas, I understand that they didn't go ahead with using this system because they had too many questions about it.
1: Now, I understand that uh, Donald Trump has fired the head of the election security agency in America.
5: He fired the guy that was in charge of overseeing election security. And the agency is called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency um, because I guess he wasn't uh, happy with the way in which uh, election security was. The outcome of 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 these elections.
1: Well, sorry, sure wasn't happy with the outcome of the election, but uh, I think in this case he also has uh, grounds to question the confidence in this this technology being used in the elections because it doesn't seem like the public can have any faith in it.
5: It was looked at before the elections, and I think, regardless of what the outcome of this particular election is, there's there are now grounds for a greater um, investigation into elections, election security, cybersecurity, with some very real questions about the voting machines themselves and the companies that uh, operate them.
1: Let's talk about the media here for a moment because just the fact that, the, what astounds me about all of this is not that, you know, Trump won or that, that you know, there might be some issues uh, and, and it's probably not gonna change the result, but just the incredible way in which the media are kind of shutting down the mainstream media, any kind of conversation whatsoever about this stuff.
5: It's incredible. Um, And again, this, I think, is going to be a a theme beyond this election when the new president takes uh, office on January 20th is the power of big tech to censor dissenting voices. Um, And we just saw a, a Over the last couple of days, a continuation of congressional hearings in which uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz grilled the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, on whether there was any sort of, you know, deliberate partisan policy to censor conservative voices and to censor Trump supporters or to censor Trump himself.
1: Yeah, and that's quite apart from the mainstream media sort of silence on any debate around these questions. Let's have a listen to Jack Dorsey being quizzed by Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz in the Senate inquiry into the influence of big tech in the U.S. this week.
6: Facebook and Twitter and Google have massive power. They have a monopoly on public discourse in the online arena. I will say it's dismaying listening to the questions from our Democratic colleagues Because consistently the message from Senate Democrats is for Facebook and Twitter and Google to censor more, to abuse their power more, to silence voices that Senate Democrats disagree with more. That is very dangerous if we want to maintain a free and fair democracy, if we want to maintain free speech. There was a time when Democrats embraced and defended the principles of free speech. There was a time when Democrats embraced and defended the principles of a free press. And yet there's an absolute silence from Democrats speaking up for the press outlets censored by Big Tech. There's an absolute silence for Democrats speaking out for the citizens silenced by Big Tech. Instead, there is a demand, use even more power to silence dissent and that's a totalitarian instinct that I think is very dangerous. Mr. Dorsey, I want to focus primarily on Twitter and ask you initially, is Twitter a publisher?
4: Is Twitter a publisher? Yes. No, we are not. We, we distribute information.
6: Does voter fraud exist?
4: I, I don't know for certain.
6: Are you an expert in voter fraud? No, I'm not. Well, why then is Twitter right now putting reported warnings on virtually any statement about voter fraud.
4: We're, we're simply linking to a broader conversation so that people have more information.
6: No, no, you're not. You put up a page that says, quote, voter fraud of any kind is exceedingly rare in the United States. That's not linking to a broader conversation. That's taking a disputed policy position. And you're a publisher when you're doing that. You're entitled to take a policy position, but you don't get to pretend you're not a publisher and get a special benefit under Section 230 as a result.
4: That link is pointing to a broader conversation with tweets um, from publishers and, and people all around the country.
6: Mr. Dorsey, would the following statement violate Twitter's policies? Quote, absentee ballots remain the largest source of potential voter fraud.
4: Uh, I imagine that we would label it so that people can have more context in okay. read
6: through. How about this quote? Voter fraud is particularly possible where, quote, third party organizations, candidates, and political party activists are involved in, quote, handling absentee ballots. Would you flag that as potentially misleading?
4: I don't I don't. You know, know the specifics of how we might enforce that, but I imagine um, a lot of these would, would uh, have a label. Pointing people to a bigger conversation. Well, you're
6: right. You would label them because you've taken the political position right now that voter fraud doesn't exist. I would note both of those quotes come from the Carter-Baker Commission on Federal Election Reform. That is, Democratic President Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker. And Twitter's position is essentially, voter fraud does not exist. Are you aware that just two weeks ago in the state of Texas, a woman was charged with 134 counts of election fraud. Are you aware of that?
4: I'm not aware of that.
6: If I tweeted that statement with a link to the indictment, would you put a warning on it that says, well, the Democratic Party position right now is voter fraud doesn't exist?
4: I, I, I don't think it's useful to get into hypotheticals, but I, I don't believe so.
5: So what you're hearing now is a possibility of further scrutiny, further investigation. You're also seeing migration from Twitter to other platforms like Parler and um, Gab, possibly. Um, so there's the potential now for other media platforms to gain um, significance and influence. And this is another question that's been raised about like, what would Trump do post-presidency? And there's very real discussion that he would... Um, start his own media company that would be a a voice or give a voice to a lot of these conservative um, uh, media that right now have been shut out of big tech.
1: We'll definitely see Trump emerge in in some sort of role in that capacity. He's not going away, that's for sure. And we'll probably see some Trump sort of endorsed uh, presidential run, if not himself, then maybe somebody he endorses or one of his family in 2024, I would imagine.
5: What you've also got is the, the prospect that Joe Biden comes into this as a lame duck president because he's already stated at the beginning of his run that he would only, if if elected, that he would only serve as a one-term president. So you've got all these issues surrounding him. You've got a media that hasn't asked one single question about the controversy surrounding uh, his son Hunter's laptop. You've got nothing about the direction of his cabinet, which seems to be now filled with a lot of um, big tech uh, Silicon Valley executives and uh, corporatists. There's nothing there in terms of satisfying the working person or the working mm. class.
0: Okay. Uh, and That's I think that
5: that has not had any scrutiny whatsoever. You really have to dig around to get that news because it's out there. Well,
1: it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, I mean, somebody who did do an interview this week was uh, past president Barack Obama uh, because he's pumping his book at the moment. And the 60 Minutes interview uh, with him was like watching an ad for the book on shopping television. I mean, he just made sweeping statement after sweeping statement, and all of those were just being allowed to go through to the keeper without challenge. I mean, what is happening to journalism in the United States?
5: Well, it's interesting that I think what you're seeing as a result of uh, the Trump presidency and beyond is a lot of very awkward and uncomfortable truths, things like voter fraud and uh, irregularities coming to the forefront, bias in media, bias in big tech, all of these things aren't going to necessarily go away because Trump is no longer president. I think that will be the hallmark of his presidency, that as an outsider, he was able to raise these questions and present them to the American voter in a way that now you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. These things are yeah. out there, and they need to be dealt with.
1: We're not even having the conversations that we need to be having. Like, um, you know, Obama was just like delivering the usual Democrat narrative, which is that all the problems and division in the United States are the result of Trump. And the interviewer just sat there nodding. It's like you and I are having a deeper conversation than that. There's no, there was no question of. Whether Oh, gee, you know, do you think the, the left-wing ideology of the Obama years might have had anything to do with fostering that division during that eight years and that, that might have actually allowed Trump to, to rise rise up? Um, I, I just don't think that the Democrats are going to get anywhere without having sort of struggle. I mean, they really shouldn't have nearly lost this election. Uh, they're not going to get anywhere until they realise that Trump wasn't the cause of a divided America, he was the effect of a divided American. Let's let's just have a listen to Obama. Uh, he walked viewers through the process of changeover of the presidency on inauguration day, and then said this.
6: And the outgoing president sits there, is part of the audience as the new president is sworn in. And at that point, the outgoing president is a citizen like everybody else. And owes the new president the chance to do their best uh, on behalf of the American people. Whether uh, Donald Trump uh, will do the same thing, uh, we'll have to see. So far, that's not been uh, his approach. Um, But, uh, you know, uh, hope springs eternal. There's a promised land out there somewhere.
1: So that was Barack Obama on U.S. 60 Minutes, Ray, and uh, just just getting a free ad for his book. No challenge, no none of the big questions. Not like there aren't a million questions that could be asked right now.
5: What would well, you one ask? big question? What would I ask? Would be I would ask two things. One would be, how do you feel in the light of the allegations raised in the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, which aren't going away? They occurred on your watch, and the idea of influence peddling is uh, a serious allegation that was never dealt with. What's your reaction? The other question I would ask, the other question that I would ask would be, given the rigors of the job, do you think that that Joe Biden, as he is right now, in his current mental state, is up to the job?
1: Mm. None of that. None of that was asked. Well, you're a real journalist. There you go. So, Ray, just to finish up our conversation this week, what is Joe Biden going to be like as president? What are we going to see? We're already starting to see him appointing some senior cabinet figures.
5: You're seeing a situation where he's not going to be answering serious questions by the media. You're going to see a situation where a lot of corporatists and more moderate and conservative figures are entering his cabinet at a time when there's this younger, more radical element of his party that he hasn't addressed in any meaningful way. You're gonna see allegations of the uh, Hunter Biden laptop scandal re-emerging. You're gonna see serious questions about uh, the electoral reforms and the legitimacy. He comes in under a real cloud. And then on top of all that, the, the, the lockdown uh, of the country, uh, it's something this dark winter that he's talking about at a time when they've just announced two vaccines, Um, So you're seeing a situation where voices uh, of dissent are being potentially uh, quashed. Big tech having uh, a lot of power that could be dismantled. You've got this wild card in the form of uh, ex-president Donald Trump forming a media organization that would hammer the Biden um, presidency in a way that the mainstream media dare not. Hammer him, Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you've got a lot of. Um, it's not going to be this sudden. Well, Trump's gone. No more drama. I think you've got all of these landmines uh, around Biden that need to be addressed, and he just so far has had a real rough, uh, a real smooth ride. You know, and the big story is, uh, you know, Joe Biden got a new dog. Uh, I,
1: I, no I've questions. said it. I've said it a hundred times. I'm going to say it again. Trump is not going anywhere. Trump was the effect of a movement, not the cause, and there's still 73 million people who voted for him that are in that movement, and this is what America's got to do. It's got to heal the divide between these two groups in its society. Uh, It hasn't got a lot to do with who's running the country unless that person makes number one priority to be a uniter, but I don't see anything coming out of the Democrat side that uh, particularly looks like anyone's looking for unity. They're, they're, you know, I mean, if they don't drop the identity politics, woke, you know, neo Marxist critical theory, whatever you want to call it stuff, uh, they're never going to get rid of the division. It's just going to keep going and going and going.
5: Well, but you're already seeing that with um, calls for some sort of a list of Trump supporters that should be punished in some way. You see that in Pennsylvania. Uh, The president's law firm withdrew due to pressure from clients. You know, you've got the situation where a lot of these institutions in the United States that were um, sacrosanct are now coming under greater scrutiny. Freedom of speech is is, uh, threatened. You've got freedom of association threatened. Uh, The Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear arms uh, under scrutiny. It is a very, very uncertain time. And whether or not somebody who has already pledged that he won't serve a second term, who comes into this as a lame duck president, Joe Biden, can actually live up to the expectations of the job.
1: Well, unless Kamala Harris uh, you know, transforms overnight to something different, which she possibly could. I'm sure she's, you know, she's a very opportunistic woman when it comes to politics and she might just transform, um, but she would have to transform a lot. Uh, she is going – she's currently – not going to be the one to unite people if she does become the next president after uh, after uh, Biden. Thank you very much once again, Ray. Great to talk to you. Catch you next Friday. Looking forward to it.
0: The best way to get the podcast is to have it emailed to you. To get on our mailing list, simply drop us a line at a u s t at gmail.com. That's a u s t, all one word, at gmail.com.
1: And joining us now is Alexandra Marshall, the queen of Australian libertarian, classical liberal and conservative Twitter. Alexandra, welcome to the show once again.
7: Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful evening.
1: This is the first episode that we are putting out on The Good Source uh, platform for right thinking media. Um, and I understand that you've got a little announcement uh, that, that about yourself and The Good Source.
7: Yes, and I am allowed to announce it now that everything is official. So not only do I write opinion articles for the good source and attend uh, the occasional podcast, I am now doing my own podcast called Curtain Call, which is going behind the curtain on our stars of the culture wars. And I believe that will include you.
1: Um, I wouldn't call myself a star of the culture wars, but... um but you can calm
7: oh, Listen to what you call me. You're going to be a star of the culture wars.
1: Yeah, it was good reciprocal, uh, reciprocal promotion there. Um, the good source is uh good G O O D S A U C E. Don't miss the play on words, uh, dot news.
7: And I've got some great guests lined up. So, uh, I hope your listeners enjoy.
1: All right. We have a fair bit of news happening in Australia that I want to whip through. First of all, this astounding story about the CEO of of Nine Media, uh, Hugh Marks, who had to quit, not because he was having a Me Too type relationship with anybody, but simply because he had a relationship, a consenting, consensual relationship, wasn't even an affair. He was single. She was single. She was a very, very senior executive uh, at nine, and uh, both of them had to quit. Extraordinary story.
7: Yes, and the longer this story goes on, the more of a non-event it becomes. So at first it was meant to be some great Me Too scandal that the press latched onto, and now that the real story is coming out from the participants actually involved in the affair, It amounts to absolutely nothing other than two people had a relationship and they both decided to leave the company basically on their own terms. They didn't even try to fight or find a way around what could be a potential conflict of interest because they were both prepared to leave. So it's not like there was some great scandal and they were forced out. It really isn't even particularly newsworthy at this point.
1: It does speak, though, to this hr culture the 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 way that corporations are operating these days in this paranoid overreactive kind of manner um i mean what happened here and alexi baker was the woman uh who was who had the relationship with hugh marks nothing scandalous about it just a normal two normal adults having a relationship uh and dating and um uh she was in in the uh, went into the uh the australian newspaper this week and said quite clearly i am not a victim you know, I'm a, a strong woman. And she said that the narrative that, that's out there, that, that uh, you know, Hugh Marks is a blokey bloke. She, This is from the Australian, uh, a blokey bloke from the Macho 9 culture where everyone is a bit of a pants man. He'd been having sex with underlings. Baker is merely the latest. And when people found out she lost her job because it's always the woman who loses her job, except that he's now lost his job too, Uh blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know that's the narrative says the australian and baker says quite clearly it is completely false um that we'd worked together on some uh, some heavy deals uh they they got to know each other um and and they decided to enter into a, a relationship and that's all it was why couldn't they just go to the the um, the the board and say, look, we want we're in a relationship. We we want to disclose it, and uh, you know we hope it's okay. And she said she, she said uh, the answer to that was um, she was ready to leave the company anyway. So she was quite happy to leave. So even the 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 beat up uh, of the me too angle that oh the woman has to be the one who quits when there's a mutual relationship, even that wasn't valid.
7: It has always been my opinion that this kind of uh- me Too scandal that comes out in the press regarding these high-profile positions is about power, not about whether or not someone was a victim. In this case, there's a reason you only ever hear about it for these high-profile positions and that's because they need to find a way to get rid of successful people who are sitting at the top of these enormously profitable businesses and there's no easier way than to, uh, to get the press to make up a story like this and spin it out of all proportion. I mean, I come from two small businesses, both of which are family-run. The uh, directors and staff are married. And inside those businesses, there are heaps of uh, relationships, both official and non-official, going on all the time. And you never hear about this kind of stuff because there's obviously no political traction in it. Uh, And this is also the reason why not just big executives like this story. But politicians are the other victims of this kind of Me Too scandal because their jobs as MPs are highly coveted by a lot of predatory competition amongst their peers.
1: So you're saying that sometimes these stories are beaten up uh, or publicised in order to remove people from senior roles by people who want their jobs?
7: Absolutely. That would be the vast majority of these cases. And that is wow. why you hear about it in politics and that is why you hear about it in these big corporations. I mean, they seem to forget that the rest of the country and the rest of businesses, they deal with this sort of thing as a mundane day-to-day activity inside the business. Like, I mean, I remember that if two people were dating each other inside a business, they would be completely ignored. Um, if there was a complaint made or it became obvious that two people have decided that they now hate each other and can't work together, which happens by the way. Outside of romantic relationships, there are people who fall, like, cannot have a professional relationship anymore for other reasons. Well, then that is dealt with by head office in a fair and reasonable fashion. And it doesn't result in this kind of victimhood culture that we see going on amongst the press gallery's favorite pets. And it really is a nasty culture between clickbait for the press and uh, advantageous peers who want other people's jobs.
1: Yeah. Well, this one was particularly interesting because uh, it was the Fairfax Media owned by Nine, uh, of which uh, Hugh Marks was the CEO, that broke the, the so-called scandal story. So quite um, yeah, so bizarre.
7: Yeah, you'll, you'll find me very cynical on this particular topic.
1: It would be good for the Me Too movement to come out and actually defend um, people who are, uh, who are in this position a little bit. It might bring some credibility back to their um, quite damaged cause anyway
7: as an ex-power woman in a profession all i can say is i wish the me too movement would vanish from existence because it is destroying our ability to be employed and to hold high positions in office they're just it's the worst social movement we've had in generations
1: you don't think that it was necessary that there was a culture for I don't, i'm not talking about cases like this but cases where there were i worked in a very very blokey macho culture uh company couple of them actually and uh I did see situations where, you know, young women in particular felt a little bit uh, uncomfortable and pressured.
7: No, absolutely not. I mean, it was already changing. So Don't forget, we had a hangover from centuries of male-dominated industries. Now, women were then creeping up the corporate ladder and it was obviously going to take a while for this transformation to, to take place and what we should have been doing and what I always trained my staff to do who, who were young women was to handle those situations better, to assert themselves and to act in a way that which would gain them respect and uh, show their work off via its merit and certainly not to climb the corporate ladder via this whole social justice politics rubbish where you become a quota girl. So it had to come from, like, for example, my mother was a power woman of the 60s. It has to come from the way you train young women and girls to behave in the workplace, not some kind of hashtag social movement, which is all tied into litigation and therefore does not have the best interests of women at heart. It has the best interest of making money off women at heart. I
1: um, want to talk about another story as well, Alexandra, uh, the media Royal Commission or the media inquiry, uh, Kevin Rudd's petition. No, he was calling for a Royal Commission in that petition, wasn't he? Um He basically uh, now is going to be the subject of an official investigation after it emerged that more than a thousand names on his little petition were fake.
7: Yes, well, I actually just had a very uh, fun rant about this this morning in The Spectator, uh, in which I said, I was going to write a witty, scathing article, but there's no sport in it anymore. As the great Malcolm Tucker once said disparagingly of an MP, this is like a clown running across a minefield. And that is, of course, because Kevin Rudd's special little survey, uh, like all internet surveys, is far from an ideal way of getting a valid uh, reading of the Australian community. It is full of bot and duplicated accounts and Mickey Mouse and it's just rubbish. He is seeking attention. He, I don't know if you remember when this started, but he's been on this since 2018 trying to get attention. And his very first tweet about the Murdoch Royal Commission was him reblogging 12 covers from the Murdoch press with mean headlines about him, all of which were both hilarious and entirely valid. And the only reason he's getting traction now is because the unions and Labor got their little feathers clipped by Peter Credlin down in Victoria. And now they're trying to get rid of Murdoch because they know that they're in trouble politically. They know that people are very angry with them and they don't want a a hostile press pointing out their failures.
1: We've already got plenty of left-wing media. We have a giant government-funded uh, organisation, which, you know, I-, I think partly is necessary, but 90% of it uh, we probably don't need to have taxpayers paying for in the ABC. Uh, and and now they're attacking um, the only sort of conservative-leaning media in Australia just about.
7: Yes, well, let's not forget that the first thing the Senate inquiry did was have a look at the validity of the survey, which was an absolute joke. But I would like to point out that... Uh, Kevin Rudd is worried about media, di- media diversity, so his first act is to try and uh, remove uh, a media voice from the environment, thereby making it, by definition, less diverse. But he has missed the uh, crucial point, which we found out from the US this week, and that is that Silicon Valley is the largest media player on earth. Whether they declare themselves as platforms or publishers, it's still true that the content of these Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube contain news and are competing against the mainstream press. Now, what I find uh, humorous is that although Silicon Valley itself is heavily slanted toward the left, the platforms have given rise to a large amount of right-wing and centre-right and libertarian voices. So by default, uh, despite their own personal views, they have given rise to a huge volume of media diversity that we have not seen for hundreds of years, if ever.
1: What that's I think is like- hilarious, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think what that's a great irony, but also what's hilarious is that the left's approach to you know uh, creating more media diversity and and having a fairer debate uh, seems to be to have more restriction, more censorship of everything they don't like, which is why the questioning in the uh, in the Senate inquiry in the United States. Of the tech uh, bosses was so split along party lines, it was ridiculous. Well, I- the Democrats saying you should be you should be crit- you should be censoring more people, and the Republicans saying what are you doing censoring anybody? And now we've got Kevin Rudd trying to do the same thing.
7: Yes, well, I watched in horror as that Senate committee went forward because there's, they always say you can't trust government with censorship, and we're giving pl- being given plenty of examples of that right now, with the Democrats calling for increased censorship of Twitter and Facebook. Uh, but if you think that our government under a conservative leadership is any better in this sphere, I should remind everybody that when Article 13 went through the European Union, which uh, affected all countries, including Australia, because of its far-reaching scope to do with various platforms like Wikipedia and private uh, opinion piece writers and YouTubers, Scott Morrison was there sidling up with New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern calling for increased censorship of online platforms, despite the fact that we talk about surveys, and the little Kevin Rudd survey, well, the survey to stop Article 13 w- was and remains the largest survey ever conducted on planet Earth. And despite this pressure, the EU moved the election of its parliamentarians forward so that they would their jobs would not be uh, risked by the vote. So they actually avoided democracy there to ensure censorship of the people. And this is sort of, yeah, I mean, a lot lot of people didn't know about that because our press barely lifted a finger to cover it. But Scott Morrison was all for the items in Article 13, wanting to bring them to Australia. So have no illusions, conservative voters who are listening. Your conservative government is just as bad. And I think it's a symptom of politicians who see the open forum and the free press and you and I having opinions and they freak out about it and they want to control it.
1: Yeah. Alexandra Marshall, once again, thank you very, very much for your insights and for being with us on the other side. Australia, we'll catch you again next week.
7: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: And we'll catch you again next week, folks, because that's the uh, the wrapping up the show of the week. And we will uh, be back next week with lots, lots more. Long show tonight, heaps of information. Um, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And it's great to be on The Good Source. Don't forget it's good S-A-U-C-E dot news, N-E-W-S and also the other side, Australia on YouTube Uh, we're on podcast uh, platforms like Apple and Spotify and iHeartRadio and all the good ones so uh, make sure you uh, you subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet we'll see you soon, see you next week